Uh-oh. Are we ready for the sky is falling? I'm ready for the sky I'm is ready. falling. Why is the sky falling? Oh, no. Rules. Rules, rules, rules. Welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode number 66. With me as always, my two Trinisphere co-hosts, Jess Dunks. Hey, that I actually cost more than three. I don't know about that. <laughs> didn't make any sense. Uh... <laughs> no, what I said didn't make any sense. And then I'm just like, I got to roll with it. Also, we have Brian Prilliman, who yes. may or may not have a mana cost of more than three. I actually have a mana less cost three. of less than three, but I have replicate so I can get up to the, I can get up to the three easily. Oh, OK. Uh, and, uh, and still get value out of it. Yeah. Hey, so we have one big bit of news Rebel. this week. Uh, Nico Skarkover from Canada has reached level three. You didn't even try. It's Skarkover. <laughs> I know. That was that's really bad. And he was on my team, Skar- too. <laughs> there are so many vowels in his, or it's, it's, so many consonants in his name. It's too much. Why does Canadians have to be so difficult? Yes, why does? Why, can't it, why does? <laughs> why does? Why does? Why does Canadians have to be so grammar? Hey, he was saying sigil earlier and we let that go it's sigil Shut brian up. it's sigil you know it maybe i whatever hey so I, grammar not so good with uh gp portland just Blah. a couple weeks ago and uh that i got to meet jess dunks there for the first time that was exciting he was Yay. he was battling it out made day two but did not win at all unfortunately i did so bad on day two <laughs> it was like the worst pick i've ever played yeah I, I mean i think making day two is pretty sweet personally but you know Oh, wait, we do have one more bit of news. What? Uh, uh, Princess Buttercup. Uh, yes, Rob Castellon did very well at the Pro Tour. He made top eight. He, he did make top eight, and he's a level two judge. And he's we call, a level two judge. And we call him Princess yes. Buttercup because he'll uh, sing that, uh, why don't, why do you build me up, Buttercup? Yeah. Yes. Just to break me down. So my, my personal favorite was the portion of the, I believe it was a portion of the coverage where they asked him, you know, what his draft strategy was because he six out the draft, right? Right. And they asked him what, what the draft strategy was, and he was like, you know, I've drafted this format like, like five times i just thought i'd take good cards and hope they were in the same color <laughs> yes and he went undefeated day one of the yes. pro tour and what a master so this is this is the great thing about rob uh the reason he got to the pro tour was because he won a ptq he played in the ptq because he forgot to confirm with the to that he was on staff to work it so so he so has a PTQ he found out region he just assumes he's working it and he just shows up ready to go no no, no. i think what happened was and this is i think it's like hey you're working please let me know you know and then he just forgot to reply oh. to the email so they assumed that he wasn't working and they found someone else to fill his spot and then he finds out like a few days before and he's like well i already got the time off so i'm just gonna leave some pile up and <laughs> you know brew this deck it the night before and just roll in there i've kind of in my mind i've got him wearing uh like plaid pajamas pants and a wife beater i would expect he was wearing black pants so the, the the funny story about this if you weren't watching twitter this last weekend is that uh because it, it appeared he was so unprepared it just went in and crushed everybody in every regard from the ptq forward um there were these rob castle on facts they were floating about on twitter did you guys see this yeah i did yes and uh where people would just a lot of them were just recycled chuck norris jokes honestly <laughs> that's okay yes. but but there was there was some very funny stuff one person was saying that uh, that they heard that Rob Castellon taught a moose how to play magic so that they could so that they could he could play it in his uh, FNM and then he beat the moose in his FNM and then he ate it. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's that's, a that's it's pretty great. impressive, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And what was he? What was he? So this was started by. So this was like when he was close to being undefeated, or he was like six zero or something like that, and like everyone was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. And didn't Eric, Eric Levine. This? Eric Levine started it, and like a few few other people jumped on, but really it was Eric and Jared Silva. Jared came out of nowhere. Which was a, Jared came out of nowhere and is like Rob Castellian plays two headed giant without a teammate. <laughs> Stallion facts. <laughs> like he hasn't tweeted anything. See, uh, Josh Odelate actually posted a couple as well. He got in on it. He uh, he was like, Rob Castellian let me mulligan to eight both games so that he could have a challenge and still beat me easily. <laughs> it was, and then like Ricky Ricky posted something along the lines like Rob Castellian actually got Jared Silva to use Twitter, <laughs> which is pretty Rob impressive. Castellian fact, which is, which made me laugh. Um, yeah. So so you know, congratulations, Rob. There's a there's a uh, he did an interview. He's got a, a, a tattoo of on his on his arm, on his upper arm, on his bicep of the uh, the judge balance or, uh, judge balance for balance. Yeah, the judge the judge balance, and he has like this this you know goatee that just goes down about you know I'll say six to eight inches. <laughs> just and his nickname is Princess Butter. <laughs> So, all right, well, that's great for Rob. Back to, yes, congratulations, Rob. Back to the sweet transition I was in, I was doing earlier. Before. Yeah, Brian tends to throw <laughs> this off for you. Uh, what was this about? Oh, well, because we had... I'm sorry, I just didn't want to be doing news. Well, okay, that's all right. news. So, yeah, because we had GP Portland so recently, which was modern format, and we have Modern Masters coming out pretty soon, uh, we thought it'd be a cool idea to do a episode on the top decks in modern right now and some of the more interesting interactions between them because so these are the kinds of things you might expect to see in modern we're not doing you know well we don't even know what all cards are in modern masters yet but how to play it yeah but no this isn't how to play these decks it's how to judge them and the other thing is uh i should probably mention this ahead of time brian and i don't play magic but just just does yeah i don't understand i don't understand that concept really i I I just don't get it i'm trying to play war I just went through a personal life thing that, that prevented me from playing a lot. And now that's ending. So I'm getting back in. But EDH is still my wheelhouse. Yeah, the, the point is neither one of us plays modern. So Jess is going to kind of lead the conversation here, although we're all familiar with the interactions, uh, particularly because I was just at Grand Prix Portland and Brian Prillman is familiar with everything that has ever been. Because I'm old. Because <laughs> I'm old. To you. I've just seen it all. Legacy is modern to you. <laughs> I still call I still call it like type two and stuff like that. Yeah, type one point five. You know. You know, we get players every once in a while that ask questions like that, and that's not what throws me off. When somebody comes in and goes, "Hey, is this tournament type two? That doesn't throw me off. Doesn't phase me. What I love is when they say things like, "So is this REL one point five? Oh, and I have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Well, there used to be there was a type one point five. That's legacy. No, no, no. REL. They're like, "Is this REL three? You know, like what? Oh, that's so. <laughs> that's like stone wheel thing. Yeah, that's before I cared about this stuff. So, Jess, lead us to this modern land and talk, uh, talk to us about some of the uh, some of the decks. So, we're mostly going to talk about the the top eight decks that, from Portland and a few other things that are interesting uh, alongside that. Um, so. To get it started, we're going to start off with Maliripod, which won the event. It's also what I was on for the event. Uh, uh, so B- Maliripod is called Maliripod because it plays Malira, Silvok Outcast, and Birthing Pod. And 
The basics of the deck are that it plays... Uh, Malira's Civil Outcast says that you can't get poison counters and creatures you control can't have minus one, minus one counters put on them. And it also has creatures with Persist. And for those of you that don't know, Persist is an ability that says when this creature dies, return it to the battlefield with a minus one, minus one counter on it. So it's the opposite a, of Undying. It's the opposite of Undying. So if you have a Malira in play and a creature with Persist dies, it will come back, but it won't get a minus one, minus one counter because it can't. So what the deck usually does is it gets a Viscera Seer into play. Viscera Seer says, sacrifice a creature you control, scry one. So you get to look at the top card of your library and decide whether you want it on the top or the bottom. And you'll get a Malira and a Kitchen Finks in play. And you will sacrifice your Kitchen Finks to your Viscera Seer. You'll, uh, it will come back and you'll scry one. And you will repeat this process until you have as much life as you want because Kitchen Finks says when it comes into play, you gain two life. And until you have a Murderous Redcap or a Court of Calling on top of your deck depending on what your mana looks like. And so then they just, the next turn will play Murderous Redcap, which when it enters the battlefield, it deals damage equal to its power to target creature or player. And they'll do the same trick. They'll keep sacrificing it and it will keep coming back and they will deal as much damage as necessary to their opponent, barring any removal or disruption their opponent has. Uh, so that's the basics of the deck. Uh, and yes, yes, it does work that way. If you have never seen the deck before, it's one of those combos that's very easy to go. That doesn't seem like they intended that, which is true. They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> when they looked, when they made Valira, no one thought this interacts really interestingly with Persist. Yes. So let me ask about that What's for a that? second. Like Malira's ability says, creatures you control can't have minus one minus one counters placed on them. Uh, generally, abilities only affect things on the battlefield. But yet, the Persist creature enters the battlefield with the minus one minus one counter. How does this work? Um, when something enters the battlefield with a counter, mm-hmm. that counter is actually placed on that creature. Uh, uh, it's a bit of an awkward interaction. And it's a little bit unintuitive. Yeah. But that- it's the same thing as some of you may have heard of the thing with like doubling season and planeswalkers where they enter the battlefield with twice as many counters because it's an effect that's putting counters on your on your planeswalker. It's a replacement effect that's replacing how it enters the battlefield with it enters the battlefield with this counter. But the counter doesn't exist on it until the moment it's on the battlefield. Like there's a moment before it's on the battlefield so where it doesn't have a counter and then a moment where it's on the battlefield and it does have a counter. But but it doesn't this this kind of weird because like let's say I have a, a two two. Okay, and then I have a card that cares about creatures with power two or less. Okay, that that triggers whenever a creature enters the battlefield with power two or less, something like that. And I, I it's a, a creature's going to be coming in with a plus one plus one count. Okay, because that's normally the way it works, even though this is this is persist. It's it's almost like it enters the battlefield, then it gets the counter, then you check the trigger conditions. Okay, that's kind of the way to think about it. It's it's hard to it's hard to explain, uh, but if you if you just think about it that way, I mean, that, like, that's actually not accurate. No, uh, I mean, I mean, I realize exists. I realize that it's not accurate. I realize when it hits the battlefield, it's got the counter on it. Okay, yes. but if you if you just if you just kind of think of it as these are the things that happen, then you can kind of see the progression of events as to how it gets the count the counter. Well, sure, but it's not a progression. It happens simultaneously. Like it enters the battlefield and gets the counter at exactly the same moment like these are one step like okay that's it, fair like it's it's not it's not a progression because then you'd have really awkward things with triggered abilities with like well, no, know, no no i wasn't uh, saying that it was stuff. Like that yeah, I know, I know, I know that. I'm just trying to be very, very clear about how this works because I don't want people thinking that the, that it works that way. Okay. Um, I know you know how it works. I want to make sure everybody listening knows how this works. So, so the creature enters the battlefield already existing with that counter, but the counter did not exist before it entered the battlefield. Just one step happened simultaneously, which means that in the case of Melilla Silvac Outcast and creatures with persist, 
it enters the battlefield without any counters at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All I was trying to get at with this question was uh, the rule. There's a rule that specifically says the word placed basically means two things. It means either has a counter put on it while that permanent is on the battlefield, or it means that permanent enters the battlefield with a counter. That's what the word placed. So when you say it can't have them placed, it means it can't enter with the counter and it can't have it put on it while it's already on the battlefield. Now, uh, right. this or so, Seer, sorry, go on. I was going to move on no, from Malira to something Yeah, else. no, I'm done with well, Yeah, so Viscera Seer, there's a whole lot of, uh, I was at uh, PT Philly uh, a few years ago, which was the, the first modern uh, first modern pro tour. Actually, I think it was the first modern event, like big, big event. Um, and an interesting call was someone was playing a, a variation of this deck, and they had Kitchen Finks, Viscera Seer, and Malira. And uh, or actually, I think they just had um, they had some sort of infinite sack outlet. It might not have it might not have been a, a kitchen face, but they just asked the question, hey, can I just look at what cards are in my deck and then just, you know, basically. Yeah, it's for it, that's it for Viscerous here. What's that? That was for Viscerous here. Yes. I said, yeah, that's for Viscerous so here. Yeah. Yeah. So so there they had, had Viscerous here. So the, the ruling the ruling was, you know, yes, you you have an infinite sack out like Viscerous here says sacrifice a creature scry one. So you basically. Basically, you can look at the top card of your library and put it on the bottom. So in theory, you could do that, you know, 47 times, 50 times, whatever, and know every card in your deck and then go through it like 10 more times until, you know, the, the, that, that card right there uh, after that 10 times is the one that you want. And then you know what the cards coming up are. So the question is, the question was from the player, can I just shortcut this? And, you know, we kind of, because it was the first time, we just kind of like looked around and we're like, uh, yes. So he picks up his deck, looks at the cards, you know, looks at the order that they're in. And basically, you're, you can't rearrange the cards. You can't reorder the cards with Scry 1. Okay, so he just kind of looked at all of them, saw the order, was like, that 12th card is the one I want. So he took the top 11 cards, stuck them on the bottom. That's his deck. It's kind of neat. Yeah, that seems fine. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a fine loop because it has a precise number of iterations. Right. Uh, it doesn't have a precise number of iterations. Sure, sure. it's gonna, it, it's bounded. The most you're gonna do, the most you're gonna go through is twice your entire deck. So it has an upper limit. Okay, you're going uh -huh. through it one, you're going through it one time, and then when you go through it the one time, you're going to be setting also the bounds for the second time you go through it. So it is, it is, it is bounded. It does have an upper limit. Okay. <laughs> Sure. I, I've gotten very... If you are a judge, please allow the players to do this. I've got a lot of answers where judges did not allow me to do this, uh, or, or various shortcuts for Viscerous here. Uh, people get very nervous when it involves picking up your deck and looking at it. Uh, yeah. So... I have another question about Malira. Yeah. Who doesn't love talking about Malira? Uh, how does she work with Inkmaw Nexus? That seems crazy. Well, yeah, there is an infected format. That's a fun one. Um, it is a fun one. So, when you have a Malira in play, uh, and someone activates an Inkmaw Nexus... They, there, there is a. Melira also says we forgot to mention this. Melira also says that creatures your opponents control lose infect. Oh yeah, because somehow that's actually the minor ability. Right. Like, yeah, right. it's the least relevant ability on this on this card, except in that matchup. Yeah. Um, th this card was originally designed as a as a limited card to kind of just hose in, like as a as a safety net in case the infect deck's really good. In yeah. Scars. Um, but as it it's turns out, it's a combo piece. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, creatures your opponents control lose infect. 
Well, the thing is here that then you activate Inkmoth Nexus, which has an ability that gives Inkmoth Nexus Infect. So you have two different abilities. They're in the same layer. Uh, so you go by timestamp order. So this creature has Infect. So first it doesn't, and then it does. But you still can't have poison counters placed on you. So if they attack you with that Inkmoth Nexus, it'll deal damage to you. But that damage will not cause loss of life because that creature has Infect. And that damage will not give you poison counters because you can't have poison counters placed on you. But it is still damage. So if they had like a curiosity on it or if it had lifelink those effects would still apply and if it hits your creatures your creatures can't have minus one minus one counters on them either so ink nexus just kind of becomes almost unless you have something that gives it lifelink or anything like that it's almost a do nothing attacker yes very odd uh this came up this came up if i remember correctly in the top eight when it when uh one of the players had an ink nexus and turns to the judge with his ink nexus in play and his opponent's malaria in play and asks the judge judge if i attack with this ink nexus will it deal damage <laughs> yes <laughs> It will And the judge looked at him and said, yes, it will deal damage. The damage will have no result. Yes. Uh, So that was that was an awkward moment. Yeah, that's pretty awkward. Uh, um, So, yeah. So that's one thing with that. Um, So that's the basics of that combo. Uh, what a lot of people are doing now is they're playing Phyrexian Metamorph with Revelark, which allows them to copy Revelark. And the Phyrexian Metamorph copy will still have Revelark's Leave the Battlefield ability. So when it leaves the battlefield, you will target two creatures uh, with power two or less and put them onto the battlefield. Two creatures in your graveyard and put them onto the battlefield. Now, what this allows you to do is target the Phyrexian Metamorph, because by the time you put the trigger on the stack, if it has died, it's already in your graveyard. So you can target the Phyrexian Metamorph and you can bring it and a buddy back into play, copy being your uh your revel arc again and you can keep looping this process so you can actually get the same combo out of it without having to use malira uh with any creature that has power two or less like say for example murderous redcap uh so that's an important thing to know there and then uh there are a lot of metamorph tricks in the deck like uh you know harmonic sliver so if you have a harmonic sliver in play harmonic sliver says slivers you control have when this enters the battlefield destroy target artifact or enchantment so if harmonic sliver is in play and you play phyrexian metamorph copying your harmonic sliver now it has two instances of that ability because all slivers have it twice and it will trigger two times to blow two artifacts a lot of people seem to have a really hard time understanding that well it'll it'll come up again soon in info 14, I bet. Uh, probably not. I don't think I don't think they'll reprint Harmonic Sliver. No, not Harmonic no. Sliver, but a Sliver with a trigger. If you have any two of the same Sliver with the same trigger, each one of them will have the trigger twice. People don't seem to have a problem with it when you actually have two Harmonic Slivers. They just don't understand why when you have Phyrexian Metamorph it does that. Weird. Yeah, wow. Because huh. uh, they just, they forget it's it's also a sliver in this instance. Like, they forget it's not just a single creature with one ability. Because you're not playing a sliver deck, you're playing a deck that has a single sliver in it. I gotcha. Like, one singleton. Like, it's it doesn't need, it doesn't ever affect anything else, so you just dismiss it and then you play, haha, I have a second sliver. Um, so anyway, those, that's mostly the stuff there. Um, also, Orzov Pontiff in the deck has the Haunt ability. Uh, for those of you that don't remember Haunt, um, Haunt says when this creature enters the battlefield, do X thing, uh, and and when the creature it haunts dies, do X thing. Um, so what, haunt means that when this creature dies, you can exile it. You have to exile it, uh, haunting target creature. So you just exile it, haunting a creature. When that creature dies, you do its effect again. But it's a triggered ability, which is important to the or to the birth and pod deck because sometimes they'll do stuff in response to get it back out of their graveyard. Yeah. So so most so most haunt creatures, I think all of them, and uh, uh, creatures, and then their spells that they have. Have an effect when they enter the battlefield or the spell has an effect 
And then when it dies, or, or when the, the card goes to the graveyard, uh, uh, so it is a trigger, remove it from the play, it's haunting, and then you get that effect again when the creature that it's haunting dies and can be either your creature or your opponent's creature. It doesn't really matter. Um, and it does target, so, you know, you have to deal with, like, Shroud and Hexproof and all that good stuff. So, right, if there's not... So that's the other thing. If there is not a legal target, it will not haunt anything. It will, it right. will just stay in the graveyard. Right, because the ability is countered, so it doesn't get exiled. Right. But, and this is with my limited understanding of haunt, if you're the only one with creatures, you're going to be haunting your own creature? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Unless they have Shroud. Right. Spooky. And, and, some, and sometimes you want, because you want to haunt your own creature, that way you have more control over when the haunt trigger goes off. And I want the mystery machine to show up. Well, yeah. This The whole thing is a bit haunting. Should we douche? <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> let's read anyway. what's haunted real quick. He's a uh, he's got haunt and he says when Orzhov Hauntov enters a battlefield or the creature it haunts dies, choose one. Creatures you control get plus one plus one until end of turn, or creatures you control you don't control get minus one minus one until end of turn. Alright, you can continue now, Jess. That's fine. I was just gonna say that's that's pretty much the majority of the, the awkward rules things in that deck um that I can think of. Well, so at the GP, but, the one I heard is uh, what happens when you when you clone Orzhov Pontiff and your clone dies. Uh well it's still going to haunt something, but then it doesn't have the trigger to build anymore so when the creature it haunts dies it just stays exiled and does nothing okay it's like casper the impotent ghost <laughs> the impotentest ghost you'll meet hopefully <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what is that everything in malira then um i think so like uh i mean there, there are a few weird things that can happen but you know they're they're not difficult they're just there's a lot of different ways you can go with the, the combinations of stuff in that deck did i miss anything that you guys can think of no i think we nailed it so then there's also there's a <laughs> there is a second birthing pod deck in the format and, that, and that's uh kiki jiki pod did they know now, those what's that i was gonna say did they know how strong birthing pod was gonna be <laughs> like um you know what's funny about it is like birthing pod i don't think is nearly as strong as court of calling in the deck oh yeah because of the fact that court is instant speed uh-huh like i won so many games with court you know court of calling for this court of calling for that like somebody attacks me with an emerald court of calling for sigarda to so i don't have to sack guys somebody tries to combo off with living end you court of calling for thalia and so they have to pay one more um you know there's just a like court of calling is so powerful um but for the the Kiki pod decks, they don't play as many Court of Callings because they play like a million colors, uh, at least six. I'm pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> at so the, a minimum. At a minimum of six. Uh, but their their main way to win, they have a lot of the same stuff that the other deck does. But their main way to win is that they they play a Splinter Twin onto. I'm sorry, they they play a, a Kiki Jiki to copy their Deceiver Exarch. And what Deceiver Exarch says is, uh, when it enters the battlefield, you may uh, untap target permanent you control or tap. Target permanent and opponent controls and kiki jiki says uh make a copy tap this make a copy of target non-legendary permanent you control creature creature yes non-legendary creature you control and it has haste uh kiki jiki has haste and the, the copy it makes has haste so what you do is you play kiki jiki or you pod into kiki jiki and you make millions of copies of your deceiver exarch and then you attack and then you get blown out by rakdos charm and they make you take one damage for every creature you have oh oh um so the, you you well, we that can occasionally happen, but usually you just win because you have millions of creatures. Uh, so so let me let me let me walk through this a little bit because I've always seen people go off, but I never really thought about it. So let's see here. They tap Kiki Jiki to make the Deceiver Exarch. Then its trigger goes on the stack, and they use that to untap Kiki Jiki, which then lets them make another Deceiver Exarch. And then they all have haste, so they can all attack. All right. Yes. Yep. So there is another way to do this. You because the deck also plays Restoration Angel. Okay. 
uh, and you can make a copy of your Restoration Angel, which will then blink your Kiki Jiki and put it back into play untapped, and you make another copy of Restoration Angel, and you can make infinite Restoration Angels. Oh, okay. Um, you can also do the combo with Village Bell Ringer, which, when it enters the battlefield, untaps all of your creatures. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I'm going to ask this question, since we're talking about Kiki Jiki, and we just talked about Malira Pod. All right, so I have Kiki Jiki and a Deceiver Exarch in play, and you have uh, Viscera Seer, Malira, and Kitchen Finks. Okay, all right? All right, Combo City. Okay, as the Kiki-Jiki player, I can make infinite Deceiver Exarchs, and you, as the Malira player, can make, well, not infinite, arbitrarily large. Okay, and the Malira player can gain an arbitrarily large amount of life. What do, Judge? Who wins? I mean, that's a really easy question, because he has to attack with those creatures. Uh, so as soon as he attacks, he's set in a number and you just gain more life than that. Ooh, he got you there, Brian. Did get me there. I think you were going for the, uh, what is it? I was it? going for it. The oh, loop? You, were going for, you were going for the Maleripod mirror. Oh, no, murderous the Maleripod, that's right. That's what I was going for, where you could do that. <laughs> what was it? Oh, no, what, what I was doing was I was trying to do the, at first I was doing the, the Kiki mirror because there have been situations where, you know, I've got a Kiki Jiki with Splinter Twin or, or I've got a Kiki Jiki with Deceiver Exarch and you've got a Kiki Jiki with, uh, with Deceiver Exarch too. So I can make an infinite number of creatures and you can make an infinite number of blockers. And one of you is playing that. And it's the same thing, though. I just wait till you attack, and I know how many attackers you have. Yeah, you're not winning this one, Brian. No, you're right. I'm not. (laughs) There was. Well, I started thinking that. I started thinking that, and I was like, ooh, ooh, instead of creatures. What's really fun is when you make millions. You make millions of deceiver exarchs, and then you play scrambleverse. But since we're not talking about EDH, I don't want to explore that one. Okay. Okay. So let's let's step back though. Let's go to the one that actually does work. Uh, one player has the basically infinite life gain combo, and the other person has the once again basically infinite damage dealing combo well so part of this is i guess i guess this really isn't a strategy discussion so i probably shouldn't bring this up but my favorite question to ask here if i'm the player with the murderous red cap is i'll say like i'm gonna try to you know go off to kill you and they say well i'll just gain infinite life in response i like to ask them at what point they're interrupting me in the shortcut because it's possible to do it wrong uh how how so so like if if they sacrifice their kitchen finks Mm -hmm. while i have a murderous red cap in play i instantly win because uh, they're just because of the graveyard you just respond to the persist trigger by killing them. Ah, so they have they have to do it while your murderous red cap is in the graveyard. If they don't, they just lose. I see. So okay. a lot of players a lot of players don't realize that. So you you ask them like so as a judge, it's important when you take a call from a table like that to clarify what's going on in the game state because you don't want to give outside assistance by telling them how to do their own combo. So okay, but as a judge, you're called over. We have this situation. One of them is saying, "Well, I'm never going to stop gaining life," and the other one's like, "Well, I'm never going to stop doing damage." What? Well, so they have to have interrupted each other at some point right so like we have to find out where they where they're oh, at they don't understand. i'm dealing infinite damage he's dealing he's gaining infinite life okay they there might be some technical like i'm responding here and stuff like that they don't understand it's just i'm doing infinite damage i respond by gaining infinite life okay i'm doing infinite damage again i respond by yeah. gaining infinite life yeah okay sure so assuming that as a judge i'm not making them clarify what they're doing in their game or, or even, or even better I, I deal two damage to you okay i gain two life yes. i deal two damage to you i gain two life exactly they're just okay, doing so they're that doing, over and they're over. doing they're doing that over and over and over again okay so what okay. we have what we have is what's called a fragmented basically a fragmented loop okay where i'm performing an action and you're performing an action and we're ending back at the basically the exact same state as when we started right okay and at that particular point once we once we establish that we are in a fragmented loop it is the active player okay he has to stop <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So whoever's turn it is. Whoever's turn it is has to stop. So and that doesn't mean like, okay, well I stop and then the 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 guy with the infinite life gain, he just goes, Well, I'm gonna gain life five thousand more times and then he's like, Oh, you're gaining five thousand more life. Well, I'm gonna go back because you changed things and I'm gonna go back and deal five thousand more. No, you're back into the fragmented loop. So it's the it's the non active player kinda gets the last the last word on the arbitrarily large gain whatever. Okay. So so don't do that during your turn. Don't try and do infinite damage on or arbitrarily large damage on your turn unless you're able to do the uh, uh, the response game that Jess was talking about. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anything else about Kiki Jiki? So not really. Uh, I mean, they have pretty much the same uh, same game plan. It's just a Splinter Twin deck, but they have a lot more searching through their deck to get there, and they do a lot of the same tricks as the uh, as the other pod deck, but they get a few more neat uh, neat options at their disposal, like they like to play Domri Raid and stuff like that. Um, so th- there's, there's not really a whole lot else to, to talk about there, um, unless you want to talk about like Grove of the Burn Willows, maybe. What about it? Um, well, it's it's a land that, uh, that w- when you tap it for mana, the uh, your opponent gains one life, um, and it's really really easy to forget to remind your opponent to get it in one life. Um, so this can easily result in a lot of GRBs. Yeah, I can see that because yeah, it, w- when you were saying it, you said when you tap it, uh, it causes something to happen, but that was just you using English. It is not a trigger. It is right, right. No, it know. is not a triggered ability. It's all part of the same thing. Yeah. Add red or green to your mana pool. Each opponent gains one life. It's the same ability. Right. So it's not a missed trigger. It's uh, you know, it's just a GRB. Yeah. This seems seems like a double GRB situation. Am I right? I've actually never had it come up, but that's what it seems like to me. Where it's my effect causing you to gain life, but you're the one not actually gaining life. So seems like a game uh, violation for both players. That's awkward. Yeah. Like, so if I'm the opposite player, my opponent doesn't say anything about me gaining life. Mm-hmm. Can I call a judge there? Like what we, as a judge, if your player calls you over and goes, my opponent didn't tell me to gain one life. Do we give them a warning? Well, if they call him over immediately, no. Why not? Oh, give who the warning? The opponent? So like, so like, so my opponent attacks a Grove of the Burn Willows and says nothing. Yeah. And then he tries to cast a spell and I go, hold on, judge, he didn't tell me to gain one life. Yeah, I, I would give the guy with the Grove a GRV there, but I would not give you a GRV. Right, okay, yeah. So that's just, just to clarify yeah. for judges who might have this come up. Um, so that's pretty much that. That also covers the, the Splinter Twin deck for the most part. Um, they just use some combo with either Kiki Jiki or Splinter Twin, which is a an enchantment that lets you basically do the same thing, uh, except that Splinter Twin doesn't really work with Restoration Angel at all. All right. So next, next, uh, well, the the red, white, blue control deck that top aided in uh, in Portland is pretty straightforward. Uh, you don't have a whole lot of rules shenanigans that happen with it, except that people like to cast their their cryptic commands and their electrolyzes wrong. Wait, tell me everything cryptic command does from memory. Uh, so cryptic command uh, says counter target spell, draw a card, tap all permanents, or sorry, tap, tap all creatures, target opponent controls, or uh, return target permanent to its owner's hand. Oh, so close. It's tap all creatures perfect. your opponent's control, not target opponent. Oh, was, that the okay. right, was that the right order? No, it wasn't the right order. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna hold them to the order. Oh, I guess it does matter actually. It does. Uh, I guess I'll throw out real quick, but with Why, a modal. It's what, okay, so give me an example of when it matters in modern. Oh, I don't have anything. Uh, it matters in the rules text. Yeah. Man. The 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 fact is, God. with a modal spell, you do you still do things in the order that their the text is listed. So this you know, is true. If you this do counter target spell, then or draw a card you choose those two options you're going to counter the spell then draw a card does it matter almost at all ever no because nobody gets priority between those two things but so here's the thing 
is a lot of times these players, they try to do this tricky thing where they'll be like, oh, I'll counter your spell and draw a card uh, or I'll, 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 I'll bounce your permanent and draw a card instead of doing something that might be a little more uh, uh, correct, like strategically correct. And what ends up happening is if you destroy the permanent, sacrifice the permanent, get rid of the permanent in some way that they're trying to bounce, they're not going to get to draw a card because they only made their spell have one target. Uh, and they do this with electrolyze as well. So they'll be like, oh, I'll electrolyze your guy instead of, say, I'll electrolyze one damage to your guy and one damage to you. All right. So if if your spell, if you pick the thing that has, you know, modes uh, like cryptic command, give it only one target and then the target gets removed, just like any other spell that uh, uh, when all the targets are gone or rendered illegal, the spell is countered upon resolution. OK, cryptic command, if you choose to bound, uh, uh, return target permanent to its owner's hand and draw a card and then that permanent goes away before cryptic command resolves cryptic command is countered you do not get to draw your card right and, and if you the draw big... your card bad things are going to happen <laughs> the big one is uh, electrolyze actually because it's uh it, there are a lot of things that can go weird with electrolyze so for example if you try to do one damage to my bird of paradise and one damage to my spell skite can i redirect the damage from the bird of paradise to my spell skite because it's a different target no so uh, let me well, talk why about, not? We, yeah, let me talk about spell sky for just a second. Basically, spell sky, the final result of the uh, the redirecting the target has to be legal. And by that, I mean it had to have been legal for the spell to originally have been worded that way. So like Electrolyze reads, Electrolyze deals two damage divided as you choose among one or two target creatures and or players, draw a card. Uh, it would not be, it's legal to do two damage to a single target. So you could do two damage to spell sky but it's not legal to do one and one damage to spell sky twice with two separate targets you can't target the same thing twice with a spell that you can you can split so, like this so you can still you can still target the ability with spell sky but when it goes to resolve it's not gonna do anything right uh what's the um now there there are spells that don't work that way right like but in this particular bond, case for example yeah, yeah. Common Bond is a pretty unique example. So Common Bond has oh, says, yeah, yeah. says target creature gets plus one plus one counter. Target creature gets plus one plus one counter. Right. And seeds so, of strength is the same. Seeds of strength is the same way, but nobody plays that. Well, the other thing I wanted to get at is um, a spell like uh, not not Doomblade, Go for the Throat, which is destroy target non-artifact creature. Once again, you know you couldn't have ever legally cast that targeting spell sky, so you can't redirect it to spell sky either. Right. So you can activate Spell Skite to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to target this and I want to change this target to Spell Skite. But when that ability goes to resolve and actually change the target, it doesn't do anything. So, yeah. And so, yeah. And so what Jess was getting at with Electrolyze is, A, you can't change the target. Uh, B, say you have Spell Skite and Birds of Paradise. I am electrolyzing one damage to each and the birds get sacrificed or dies. Well, one of my targets is still legal. I'm going to still get to draw a card. But say I'm doing two damage to the birds and the birds gets sacrificed or otherwise leaves the battlefield. I only have one target now. The target has become illegal. I'm not going to draw a card. All right. Is that it? So I had I had one of the most, and I still remember this. This was back during a, a Mirrodin block. One of the most awkward situations I've been in. So a guy was playing. Uh, I think it's Livewire Lash. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he was he was. Uh, yeah. So he was a target or whatever. Yeah. Um, whenever this creature becomes a target of a spell, this creature deals uh, two damage uh, to target creature player. So the guy had a I think a blight blighted agent that's like a, a blue one one infect dude equipped with live wire lash and then he was just churning out pump spells on it uh -huh. and his opponent was just yeah. like 
uh, I'm going to redirect the the pump spell, or, or, or so we had this. So we had Livewire Lash on the Blighted Agent. He casts a pump spell. Okay, so the Livewire Lash trigger goes on the stack, and his opponent redirects that trigger to his spell sky. Right. Because okay? the guys the guys trying to Livewire Lash his opponent for like the last two poison damage, and so he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna target you, and he's like, uh, redirect to spell sky. And the guy's like, uh, okay, I'm gonna cast another pump spell on my guy, and he's like, well, I'm going to redirect that to, to Spellskite. And then he's like, uh... And then he started redirecting the pump spells. The opponent started redirecting the pump spells to the Spellskite also. And basically, his opponent, uh, the guy with the Blighted Agent, just got really, really confused and just started like, well, I'm going to try and power through this and just cast pump spell, pump spell, pump spell, <laughs> pump spell. And so the stack was something like, I'm sitting there watching, and it's everything's like, in response, I do this, or in response to this. The stack was like, well over 12 things on the stack like i actually had to pull out my pad and paper and jot everything down wow um and then i really really wanted to to leave and so we start resolving things you know this is okay this is this is what's happened this is what's happened another judge comes over and he's like uh spectator spectator says that you you missed uh uh this particular uh trigger here and i'm like nope that's about eight more steps down on the stack i got it right here <laughs> he's like uh right carry he looks at he looks at my pad he's like uh carry on then and <laughs> just runs off worst ever so the, the, so what's interesting about this though is that in these like with the new trigger rules he could just miss those triggers if like if his opponent goes i'll spell skite it and he goes oh, okay and says nothing about the trigger he's missed it yeah 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 he because it because it has a target so he has to say the target when it goes on the stack yep and, and if once... he doesn't now i can't tell him i'll spell skite it so you don't get your trigger or something like that i can't do that but if yeah. i said well i'll spell oh you're gonna cast that on your guy i'll spell skite the spell and he goes okay that's fine so just is there anything else about what? red white blue you you wrote it down rwb which is confusing i mean that seems like it's Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. (laughs) I don't get, I don't, I don't get, okay, whenever this creature becomes the damage, you're saying, so if he's just saying, like, yeah, I, I giant growth my creature that's live wire lashed. Okay. Okay. Then I go, okay, well, I will, I will spell skate the giant growth. And you go, oh, oh, okay. Okay. I have to, I have to declare. uh, Yeah, well, this was, this was, this was two years ago. Yeah, well, obviously, because people were playing Livewire Lash. Right, it was, I, I understand that, but, like, now that's not how the rules work, is my point. Yeah, I guess that is. Ugh. <laughs> but anyway, so, what else? So, like, as a judge now, you'd handle it differently. Um, so, uh, let's see. So, also in the top eight, we had Affinity. Um, and for those of you who haven't been playing Magic for a long time, Affinity is nothing like Affinity used to be. Affinity used to be the bane of existence in Magic. Uh, the bane of Magic's existence, I should say. Um, because it was this terrible thing in Mirrodin standard that everyone hated and, and couldn't beat it and they had to ban some cards. Anyway, uh, now they call it Affinity even though it doesn't usually play cards that have the Affinity ability. That was my next question. Uh, uh, it, sometimes it plays Thoughtcast, so I guess that's relevant. So Affinity means that this costs one less for each thing that this has Affinity for and usually in that deck it would be Affinity for artifacts. Uh, so if they have a spell that says it has, it costs three and a blue and it has Affinity for artifacts and they have three artifacts it only costs one blue to play because it costs one less for each artifact that they control. Uh, other th- things to watch out for with this deck, uh, mostly just making sure that they're actually paying for everything they play, and they're not trying to out-of-order sequence something to make make a Mox Opal give mana that it can't give. Um, 
Uh, which can yeah, what's well, that? Well, hold on. So Mox 04 says, uh, as Metalcraft, add one man of any color to your mana pool, activate this ability only if you control three or more artifacts. So how, uh, do you have like an example? What's that? Do you have an example of what, what you're saying? Like how can order, out of order sequencing get mana out of a Mox Opal? Oh, so like if you're trying to uh, just kind of explode your hand, um, you might, for example, let's say I have a planes, a mox opal, and a guy. Uh-huh. Or I have a planes and a mox opal, and I play, uh, you know, and I just throw a bunch of cards on the table, and those cards are uh, uh, a, a oh, crap, what's it called? The thing that lets you tap a guy for mana in Lorwyn. I have no idea. It's a card that they play. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's a card spring, that they play. Spring, spring leaf drum. Yes, yeah, spring leaf drum. So I play. I put like a spring leaf drum and a guy and another guy out, and I just tap them. Mana sources. It uh, it means that we're in a situation where we can't actually have gotten there. But if the players aren't paying attention, they'll just let them continue playing because they threw out so many artifacts so fast. Gotcha. That um, there's no way to have gotten there in a situation where you can have the Mox Opal giving the right mana for that for that sequence of events. Um, so you have to be careful with that. Uh, sometimes people won't even. I mean, it's usually accidental. Nobody's trying to cheat. I don't want to throw that out there. But uh, like sometimes you'll have people try to pay the black mana for Vault Scourge with a Mox Opal that they can't tap for mana. People just forget that it has the three artifacts ability. Um, and then the other thing you have to worry about is Kataki, um, which, as the trigger rules are currently written, is very awkward with uh, Affinity because lots of pod decks like to board in Kataki against Affinity. Uh-huh. And, and what Kataki is- says, okay. uh, so Kataki has a triggered ability, sort of. Kataki actually gives every artifact a triggered ability. So it says artifacts have at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice this unless you pay one. It's kind of the same thing like Tabernacle in, in Legacy. It gives... It I have gives no all, idea what that card is, but I will assume oh, that's correct. Tabernacle Pendril, all creatures have at the beginning of your upkeep, destroy this creature unless you pay one. Right. It's very okay. similar to that. So, so the problem with this uh, from a judge perspective is that you end up with the situation where um, uh, if, I, if I put Kataki into play and I pass the turn and my affinity opponent untaps and draws a card and I call a judge, he's just missed a bunch of detrimental triggers because his his artifacts have the trigger, not my permanent. So even oh, though it's okay. my card causing it, he's going to end up with a warning for a detrimental trigger. Yep. And he's going. They all have default actions. So because they have a default action, he's going to sacrifice his entire team. Well, I mean, um, you know that that's unfortunate, but <laughs> you're at a competitive event, so well, you are at a competitive event. Uh, well, even before even before the mis the mis trigger uh, policy change, that would have been the case. Yeah, that's right. True. You still you still missed your trigger and it had a default okay. action and it has a default action. So it's really no different than your dude has echo. Well, no, it is different. See, because so let's let me show you why it's different. OK, because if I if I let's say I'm the affinity player and you're the birthing pod player that has a Kataki, you put a Kataki into play and then you say go. Right. And I go, OK, and I untap and I go untap and I go upkeep and you go, yeah, sure. And I go, I'm going to draw a card and you go, hold on, stop, judge. OK, before you'd get DQ'd for fraud. OK. Because you were aware of the trigger. Because you were aware of the trigger and didn't point it out. But now you don't have to point it out. Well, okay, sure. Okay, well. So there's a significant difference from the old yeah. policy. But, well, it's a significant difference for, for the opponent. But the player himself, it's if he forgets his trigger, okay, under the old policy, it would have been uh, uh, sacrificing his dudes. Okay, under right, the new yeah. policy, it's sacrificing your dudes. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, so there's definitely that. Uh, and then. 
then Scapeshift was the other big deck. Was there anything about Affinity? I'm sorry. Anything else that we should talk about? I, like, it's pretty straightforward. They put out lots of artifacts, and then you blow them up, and then they, they don't Dark, do it. Darksteel Citadel under a Blood Moon. Hey, we'll get to that later. Oh. Uh, yeah, we, we're going to do, a, like, kind of a section on Blood Moon, because yeah, there's a lot of things All about right. it. Okay. Yeah, no, Affinity isn't so bad. Oh, yep, yep. Okay, I see that. In this. All right. Yeah, you know, I've gone back and I've, I've listened to a bunch of these, uh, this podcast we've been doing. Brian never reads the notes. No. Or he'll read I, them like once, but he never sees the changes. I, hey, man. Hey, man, I don't need notes. Uh, hey, I, man. I've, I've read, I've read down to the point that we are. I just hadn't read past it. <laughs> well, that's important for the whole flow of the show, though. <laughs> to know where we're going, not just where we are. You'll be fine. Hey, speaking of where we're going, scape shift. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Reading ahead. Awesome. Um, so somebody explain the scape shift combo. Uh okay. It's it's what they call a one card combo. So I'm gonna read Scape Shift first. Scape Shift reads, sacrifice any number of lands. Search your library for that many land cards, put them onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. Uh, my understanding of the scape shift combo is it solely uses Valakut the Molten Pinnacle. So you play Scape Shift, you sacrifice eight lands, assuming nothing else is affecting it. I, I understand there's other ways. Is eight correct? You get two Valakuts. Se- seven is actually correct. Seven. Because they, everybody plays Shocks in this format, so oh. you can get deal 18 damage that way. Okay, well, let me read Valakut real quick. Uh, so it enters the battlefield tap. Whenever a mountain enters the battlefield under your control, if you control at least five other mountains, you may have Valakut, the Molten Pinnacle, deal three damage to target creature or player. Uh, oddly enough, it is not a legendary land due to design decisions. So so if you get seven lands... Oh, I'm sorry. In my head, I was getting two, two Valakuts. That's yeah, you, you need one Valakut and six mountains to so deal 18 damage. If you get yeah, if you get one Valakut and six mountains with the uh, the escape shift, they're all going to enter at the same time, which means Valakut is going to trigger for every mountain that entered the battlefield because every single one will see five other mountains. Yes, that's, that's the that's the key, the other. Yes. So in, in total there, with just one Valakut and six mountains, you will do 18 damage. How is this different if I have Prismatic Omen in play? If you have Prismatic Omen in play, which makes uh, all lands, all basic land types, in addition to the other types, then Valakut itself is also a mountain, and it counts as a mountain entering the battlefield under your control, so you get another trigger. And you can get away with less mountains. You can get away with six six lands in. Yeah. I mean, really, anything. You can go get forests and stuff like that if you so choose. Well, at that that point, the important thing is that your Valakuts are also mountains. Yeah. So you can go and get four Valakuts and two other lands and just instantly kill them. Right. So the the other thing that's that's interesting about Valakut is it's got what's called an intervening if clause. So we've we've talked about them a little bit, but intervening if clauses check both uh, uh, when the trigger is put on the stack and it's checked upon resolution. So each mountain, in order to get the three damage, has to have five other mountains, has to see those five other mountains when it's put on the stack, and when the ability resolves, those five other mountains still have to be around. So if something happens to one of those mountains, uh, say it gets uh, sacked or destroyed to uh, to you know to some effect, um, it's it's going to behave not quite entirely the way you think it does. So let's say in our specific example, we've got our one Valakut and we go get our our six mountains. So we escape shift for seven. We get our one Valakut, six other mountains. All right. Each of those mountains sees five other guys. They're all going to trigger, 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 trigger. One of the mountains gets destroyed. Okay, it's in the graveyard now. All six of those triggers, or, or most of those triggers, are going to go to resolve, and one of them's going to look and it's going to see now. 
now when it resolves, oh, I only see four other mountains. I only see four other mountains. I only see four other mountains, and they're gonna, they're, they're not gonna fire. They're not gonna happen. They're not gonna happen. They're not gonna happen. Except the last one, the trigger that belongs to the mountain that was destroyed. Its five other mountains are still on the battlefield. Those are the five that are left, and so it's going to happen. You're going to get its trigger. Right. So you just went from 18 damage to three damage. Right. You're probably not happy. No. <laughs> you've probably just decided to kill a creature. <laughs> well, you've already declared. You've already made the targets, though. Right? Yeah, when and the hoodie was on the stack. So I'm going to shoot your face for 18. Yeah. Oh, oh three. Cool. Four mana lightning bolt. Yeah. So oh. I see I see you put Titans on here. What Titans are we talking about? Uh, so the deck does play Primeval Titan sometimes. Okay. Uh, Primeval Titan is a, a card that was in the standard versions of the Valka deck because they couldn't play Prismatic Omen or Scapeshift. Uh, Primeval Titan is a 6-6 six, six creature for 6. When it enters the battlefield or when it attacks, you may search your library for two lands and put them into play tapped, and it has trample. Uh, so they often use Primeval Titan as a way to go get their Valka or any other utility land that will be useful at the moment. Okay, so it kind of feels the same whole as a uh, scapeshift and has all the same rules issues i mean yeah it's uh i've seen versions of the deck that play court of calling just because like if they are lacking their valakids they can actually just ramp up like with, with court of calling they can court at the end of turn get a, a titan get some valakids untap attack and kill you i don't think we ever said what court of calling does uh so court of calling is convoked. you're right we did so uh court of calling is uh is an instant that costs x green 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 and Search a library for a creature with converted mana cost X or less and put it onto the battlefield. And it has Convoke, which means you could tap a creature to reduce its cost by one or by one of that creature's color. So if you, you could tap, like, for example, if I tapped three green creatures and a spirit token, I could Court of Calling for one without paying any mana. So, and the other thing was, we already talked about Prismatic Omen, uh, but when we were talking about that the intervening if clause, remember, um, if somebody tries to get six lands, like they get four Valakuts and two islands, for example, and they have a Prismatic Omen in play, um, if I blow up their Prismatic Omen in response that intervening if clause means that they won't deal any damage yeah because there are no longer five other mountains there are no other mountains uh and then uh thalia has in the past it's actually in pretty much every format i've seen thalia played in thalia guardian of thraven causes grbs (laughs) yeah Um, Uh, yeah i agree yes so uh so i put this in here so that we could talk about that because um one of the decks it's uh, that people like to play it against it, well they like to play it against control but typically your control players they just shoot it on site if they can because uh, they need to cast non-creature spells right so it's it has less opportunity to cause problems uh where i've seen it cause the most problems in modern is against decks like living end that that have cascade okay uh because what ends up happening is uh they they'll pay the one and if they're not paying attention they will forget that they have to pay one again to cast their cascade spell so so, so Thalia Guardian of Thraven says that for non-creature spells cost one more to cast. Right. right. So if they cast Demonic Dread, so Living End is a combo deck that casts Demonic Dread or uh, Violent Outburst, both of which have Cascade, until they hit the card Living End, which has a uh, converted mana cost of zero, which basically swaps things in play with things in the graveyard. Um, so they put a whole bunch of creatures in the graveyard, get Living End, and put their creatures in play. Well, Thalia makes the uh, the Cascade spell cost one more, but it also makes the Living End cost one more. Yeah, okay. Um, so one of the things that you might see uh, players do is 
cast Court of Calling to go get Thalia in response to the spell with Cascade. Uh, so like I, ca- I tap three mana and cast Violent Outburst, and you respond by getting Thalia in play with your instant Court of Calling, and it effectively counters my uh, living end. Okay. Yeah, and that's because th- Thalia adds an additional cost, and even right. though the Cascaded spell, you don't have to pay the mana cost, you still have to pay any additional costs it might have. So I mean, say you say you were um, cascading into Fling, you know, and it says there's additional costs to play Fling, sacrifice a creature, right? You still have to sacrifice a creature. Like it seems clear with a card like Fling, but maybe people don't apply that to Thalia as well. Right, because they they say like, oh, well, I don't have to pay the cost. So yeah, I don't have to pay the mana. Um, this this also applies to like living end we're just gonna say has suspend so you sure you can cascade into it you could also cast it with suspend or or you could also suspend it and when it goes when that last suspend counter comes off and you can cast it without paying its mana cost it's the same thing you gotta pay the one for thal yep so you always pay the one for thalia if it's a non-creature yep and if trinosphere is in play are we ready are we ready for blood moon are we ready to do this we're ready for blood moon i saw quite a few blood moon questions at the uh, at the grand prix uh, and i think they're like, pretty good it was it was the sure. most at philly it was the most asked about card interaction when we had a modern ptq uh, last season season before last it was the most asked about card interaction it, it always 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 seems to be uh, a problem so yeah, blood- it was a big deal in, in Portland, if I remember correctly, although I wasn't on staff. So throw me throw me some some Blood Moon questions. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Blood Moon or Magus of the Moon both can do this. Uh, they read non-basic lands or mountains. That's all they say, and they cause so much issues. Uh, so the first one that actually came up for me at GP Portland was the, uh, you guys mentioned it earlier, is it Darksteel Forge? Is that what it is? Darksteel uh, Dark Citadel. Citadel, Citadel yeah. Darksteel Forge is a very different card. Darksteel Citadel. There's so many cards with Darksteel before them. Uh, Darksteel Citadel is an artifact land. It has the ability Darksteel Citadel is indestructible, and it can tap for one mana. Right. What happens when Blood Moon comes out? Uh-oh. Like, I mean, I had that call out there, yeah. and there's, there's a couple of things in, in play here. Yeah. So the the print on Darksteel Citadel, there is an ability that says Darksteel Citadel is indestructible. Okay. That phrase is an ability. So when a non-basic land is, or when when you are turned into a land type, mountain, you know, plains, whatever, your rules text is blanked, is erased essentially, and replaced with the mana ability of the appropriate land type. So we remove the text that says you can tap for colorless. We remove essentially the ability, the text that says you are indestructible and give it instead tap for red. Now, where people get confused is, but judge, I've heard that being indestructible isn't an ability. And where where that confusion is, is yes, being indestructible is, isn't an ability that can be removed. But the words on the card, this, is, this creature is indestructible, printed on the card, that is an ability that can be removed. So if if something you know it is indestructible until end of turn that's not an ability that can be removed like it's, it's just something like, true about the card right it's like saying this creature has plus three plus three until end of turn plus three plus three is not an ability it's just a continuous effect yeah but if you have a card like the new sliver that says slivers have plus three plus three that is an ability yep. so actually i want to i want to jump forward a second and then jump back we'll come back to dark seal citadel in just a second but yeah everything brian just said was correct there's something else i want to talk about but i think it'd be better if we talk about uh blood moon and shock lands first and then come back to the artifact land okay so if we have blood moon out and we play any of the shock lands uh the the question we see all the time is does it come into play tapped what happens if i pay two life can i pay two life like how does that work yes yes you can (laughs) yes 
because it's it's a replacement effect. Okay, the shock land is when you're making the decision to pay the two life. That is that is a replacement effect modifying how it enters the battlefield. It's not yet on the battlefield. It's going, 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 and you make the decision to pay the two life for it to come in untapped, and boom, it's a mountain. It's an untapped mountain. Right. So either you have a tapped mountain or an untapped mountain for two life. Yep. So I want to talk about the uh, so the way Blood Moon works is when it when a card sets a land's type without saying that it keeps its other types it removes all its abilities like brian said so say i play play a shock land say i play the orzov shock land um godless shrine it replaces the the subtypes of swamp and plains with mountain because non-basic lands are mountain so it loses all of its additional text it can only tap for red now it can't tap for black or white right so by the same logic we hop back to indestructible uh i just called it indestructible artifact land in the notes we hop back to dark still citadel i make it a, a mountain is it no longer an artifact uh, it is, in fact, yeah. still an artifact because artifact is not uh, a land type that it can change. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Right. This setting it to a mountain will replace all the land types, but it will not replace any other types the card may have. So uh, as just one more last example, say I have the Orzhov Guildgate and I play Blood Moon, right? It's no longer going to be a gate because all the land types are replaced, but obviously it's still land. It'll just be a mountain. It'll also still enter the battle tapped. So I think along those same lines, let's talk about Blood Moon and Arbor Dryad. So Arbor Dryad is that little weirdo. Dryad Arbor. Yes, Dryad Arbor. <laughs> stupid um she's that little weirdo she's that one one land creature dryad i think yeah now this one actually works a little differently now because of innistrad yeah but so at some point we have to stop talking about the past okay so <laughs> you can't so this time the the errated version of the card uh the the card from future side actually has an ability on it that says dryad arbor is green uh, it no longer has that ability. It has been in the Oracle text. It has been replaced with that little color indicator circle widget thing that is on uh, the back sides of double face cards or the night side of double face cards to indicate the color. Okay, that is relevant. Okay, because when your Dryad Arbor becomes a mountain, okay, it is still a creature, it is still a Dryad, it is still a 1-1, but all of its rules text, including the the ability to tap for green, is replaced with uh, tap your mountain. So you have a, you basically you get, you have a creature land Dryad mountain, the ability to tap for red, it is a 1-1, and because the color indicator is not blanked out by uh, uh Magus of the Mountain Blood Moon's ability. Uh, Magus of the Blood Moon's ability. Um, it is green. Okay. Before it was an ability, it did get wiped out, but now it's a color indicator. It's not. So that's 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 hardly ever relevant on anything other than Judge Nerd fights, where we talk about rules. I don't think this show is ever for se- Judge Nerd fights. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen any interaction ever that's actually cared whether the Dryad Arbor was green or colorless. What about uh, death, death mark or whatever? Uh, 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 oh, hey. you got me with death mark. So, oh. and and you kind of you kind of ran over real quick, but just a point I want to make very clear here is that she is still a dryad, right? She's only losing her land types. She is not losing her creature types. So she maintains, she continues to be a creature. It's a perfect segue from our our, our indestructible artifact land, dark steel citadel, stayed artifact. Yeah. Okay. Dryad arbor stayed creature and you know if it stays a creature why are you going to get rid of its creature subtype yeah 
Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It makes sense. Well, yeah, it makes sense well, not to get much, rid of it. Yes. As much sense as a dryad mountain does. Come on, man. Dryad forest, completely understandable. Dryad mountain, crazy. Okay, so one last one that we saw. Say I've activated an Inkmoth Nexus, okay? So I have the ability going that makes it a 1-1 with flying uh, and infect. Infect. Okay. I then play Blood Moon. Oh. What what happened? I have a flying mountain with Infect. Is it 1-1? One, one? It is a 1-1, one, one. yes. So what happens is, is, hey, if you listen to our Layers podcast. Hey. Uh, hey. So you run through the layers. We have no copy effects, control effects, uh, no text, uh, type effects. Oh, we do have a type. We have, we have a type effect that's making it uh, a creature, an artifact creature that's still a land, and a that's making it a mountain okay so we make it a creature we make it a mountain um so we have our our creature we have our our artifact creature mountain uh then we look at uh now it's it's kind of weird that in the actual type uh changing layer that's when all the 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 actual text gets blanked out so it's not actually considered removing abilities for the removing ability layer it happens in the type changing layer right okay so then uh so text type uh color nothing color I'm doing this from memory then we go to abilities and abilities is hey you're flying and you have infect okay because the ability is it's a continuous effect okay blood moon doesn't uh, erase that okay uh then you get the power and toughness setting of of later on of one one so you have a one one flying infected infect mountain until end of turn in which case it'll revert to just being a mountain and it does not have the ability to become a dude again it can just tap for red yeah yep so it's, it's lost all the printed abilities but it has the stuff that it got and after at the end of turn you know when it reverts from being an ink moth nexus you're never going to be able to turn it back into one for as long as uh well you're never going to be able to turn it into a dude it keeps its name it's always an ink moth nexus y- yes when it reverts from being an ink moth yes and not a nexus thereof <laughs> awesome okay okay great i think that's it for modern well that's not everything we can do but that's that's oh well, yeah. discussing the most popular decks for sure yeah well we could go into all kinds of things we could i mean we haven't even talked about flanking yet that is true or Bushido, even. Bushido is fantastic. Or, or Rampage. Frenzy. Absorb. Rampage is great. It's not modern. Uh, you sure there wasn't a... Yeah, no, the Crawl Giant was in the uh, the time shifted. Was it? Yeah, buddy. How about more? Well, actually, that's a fun one that I did see at the GP. Uh, speaking of morph real quick. Okay, go for uh, it. Was Possibility Storm. Um, okay. So the card Possibility Storm is a new card that says whenever, uh, when you cast a spell, exile it, then reveal cards to the top of your library until you reveal a card that shares a type with it, and then cast that card. Well, play that card. Um, so people would play Zoetic Cavern. This guy who's playing this deck would play Zoetic Cavern uh, morphed. Okay. So it's a land that has morphed. So he would cast it, and that makes it a creature on the stack. Right. Then it gets exiled. Then he flips through cards in his library until he hits a creature. But all the Zoetic Caverns in his deck are lands so he keeps going until he hits emerkel and just cast emerkel so possible <laughs> yeah there was there was a guy at a at a, a standard ptq who was running uh, russian possibility storms just for the trolls so he or she exiles a card that shares a card type yeah I, I suppose it's not it's not no it's not looking at the exiled it's not no, looking it's at not the card looking, as it exists it's not looking at the card in exile it's looking at last minute information yeah, yeah interesting i like yep. that the guy started the day x3 and then i didn't hear from him again so i I don't know how he did. Well, he's living the dream, though. All right, let's hop into our mailbag. Mailbag. 
time. <laughs> so because the show's running a little long, we're not going to read all of our emails this time. We have like our last episode was supposed to be kind of a catch up episode. Right. And then we only read like five emails. And now we have so many emails. I don't know. I don't know. It's like a it's wave. A popular, it's a popularity thing. We're popular now. We're so popular. We made it. Finally, we hit big. Our first email comes from Jeff Sweers. He says, hi, guys. This isn't a game rules question so much, but I was wondering if it, if it is acceptable to differentiate between sideboard and main deck with sleeve front textures. Uh, given that the same card back is the same color and texture and the sleeves are from the same manufacturer, can I sleeve up my main with shiny clear fronts and my board with matte finish fronts? Thank you for your time. Hey, I have opinions on this because this came up at GP Portland, which is funny because my opinions now are, uh, now that I've seen it in action, are different than what, what I responded on the email with. So Because we, we actually disagreed on this. Well, yeah, but it was kind of a I I really needed to see it in person. Yeah. And now that I have uh, my opinion is pretty clear. Uh, So I had I had the judges that were on my team. You know, they looked through this deck. And so the deck we had was about 50 percent matte and 50 percent clear. Uh, The backs from the side from the backs, you could not tell at all that they were different sleeves like they did look identical. But from the front, you could tell you could feel a difference between uh, what the top card was like you. You knew if the top card was matte or clear, like they had different thicknesses or something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, The difference between it's definitely something you can feel. So with that being said, that would make the cards mark. And so for Jeff, I would strongly recommend that you never actually do this because if you if you can tell you're about to draw one of your sideboard cards that is an advantage and depending on the well more importantly if you can tell if the judge can tell who's deck checking you then you're going to end up with a game loss for marked cards yep that's so exactly it. Let's let's not do it now. Now something that you are allowed because Jeff was wanting to do this so that he could distinguish his sideboard cards from his main deck cards. Okay, there there is. I mean, if you want to get like a dry erase marker or something like that and put like a dot on the front of the sleeves. Okay, something that doesn't change its thickness or anything like that. You know, sure, whatever. So you know your sideboard cards. Yeah, I think that's okay. And that's. I mean, that's, I, I don't know how I feel about that. That's that's. I, I guess it could be minor strategic advice well i mean you're allowed like, to you're allowed like to alter your cards so I mean, no, that's what i'm what's... saying like i'm not sure if it if it's minor enough to fall into the alters policy there like it's, yeah. it's that's kind of awkward absolutely. Like, it's absolutely minor enough i mean i'm not allowed to have my sideboard but like i'm not allowed to have my deck list with my sideboard in front of me during the match okay but at the same at the same time though you think you're not gonna know when you draw a card that's in your sideboard you're not gonna know it i mean basically he's he's putting the dots there to help help de-sideboard quickly. Yeah, Jess, I think you can't have your deck list there so that you uh, so that you actually have to remember what cards are in your deck, right? You know, if you're like, should I tutor this turn? I don't know. Let me look at my deck list. You know, having dots on the front of the sleeves isn't really helping you remember what cards are in your deck. It, yeah. They just help you remember whether or not you sideboard a card that's already in your right. hand. I mean, that's, that's like saying, like, you know, you're going to disallow somebody writes, you know, attack with me on their ball lightning. You know, I mean, that's not really, that's not really strategic advice either. Okay. Well, I guess, I guess the real thing is make sure you clear it with the head judge first. But don't do, don't do the mat and clear one, but anything else, clear it with the head judge. All right. Our next question comes from, or it's not even really a question. It's from Andrew Hartzell. And all he wants to know is what our favorite odd or corner case rules interactions are. Uh, he says his personal favorite is that when an R is placed directly onto the battlefield via whatever means it is attached to an appropriate permanent regardless whether um without actually targeting it meaning that you can put pacifism on something with hexproof i assume your opponent something with hexproof well you could also put it on something you could draw with hexproof you could yes but you already could pacify your own things with hexproof 
Brian, you responded to this. I did. Uh, basically, I said what I got. It's not really a corner case. It's more of a like a rules interaction thing. You know, when people tell me, uh, hey, you know, when when new judges are are, are learning things and they're you know you ask them questions about, uh, well, you know, if I go to like murder your dude and then you was it cloud shift him so he blinks in and blinks out really quickly, uh, blinks in, blinks back in, is is the the murder still going to resolve? And they go, no, it's it's an object in in a new zone. It can't be, you know, it, it changed zones. It's considered a new object. Uh, the murder can't find it anymore. And I go, okay, so whenever you change zones, things can't find it. So if I if I path to exile your dude and you sacrifice it in response, it's going to go to the graveyard. It doesn't, path to exile doesn't resolve and, and, and exile it from the graveyard. They go, no. And I go, okay, how does Angelic Destiny then? Mm-hmm. Um, an Angelic Destiny is... Or uh, Rancor, right? Well, Rancor, they're different though. Okay. That's because that's one of the follow-ups. I'll I'll either start with a rancor and go into angelic destiny or the other way around. Okay, so uh, angelic destiny is an aura. It's an enchant creature. Enchanted creature has a bunch of awesome stuff. Becomes an angel, and it says when enchanted creature dies, return angelic destiny to its owner's hand. Okay, and typically I go, well, the creature dies. Okay, uh, the creature goes to the graveyard. That trigger event happens while angelic destiny is is uh, the event happens while Angelic Destiny is still in the battlefield, but state-based actions happen. Uh, uh, Angelic Destiny is put into the graveyard. Then the trigger is put on the stack. Okay, so the trigger event happened when Angelic Destiny was on the on the battlefield. It gets put on the stack after it goes to the graveyard. Somehow we know that you can go get it in the graveyard and put it in the owner's hand. How does that work if it's a new object? How does it find? It's just fun to watch the little ha- the the little the, the hamsters on the wheels start spinning and then just fall over. <laughs> um, the answer is it's an exception. To oh, okay. Rule. It's an exception to the zone change rule. Okay, and Rancor actually behaves similarly, but it actually has a slightly different exception because it's it's uh, whenever Rancor goes to the graveyard from the battlefield, whereas Angelic Destiny is whenever the creature that's enchanting it dies. So that's fun. You know, the one I like, uh, and I'm, I know I stole this probably from either you, Brian, or someone else in, in IRC, is a good old Masticor and Astronaut's Altar. So Masticor has an ability that says uh, two mana, Masticor deals one damage to target creature. And Astronaut's Altar lets you sacrifice a creature to add two to your mana pool. Um, if you were completely tapped out, except for those two cards, you could still do one damage to target creature, sacrificing Masticor to the Astronaut's Altar to get the mana to pay for its ability. That's a, It's actually very straightforward once you understand how to uh, cast a spell, but I know the first time I heard it, I was like, ooh, fancy. Uh, to go through it real quick, steps of casting a spell are, uh, the first step is to announce the, or activate ability, is to announce the ability and put it on the stack. So we go ahead and announce Masticor, put it on the stack. Later on in the steps, you'll get it opportunity to activate mana abilities so you're like okay well astronaut's altar is a mana ability i'll activate it and sacrifice masticore uh, and add two mana to my mana pool and then finally the final step is paying the costs for the ability or spell so you pay the two mana so even though masticore is dead you can still do one damage to target creature just you have one even though this was just sprung on you uh favorite rules interaction yeah just i don't know i mean i, I... There are a lot of awesome rules interactions. I, I kind of went over one of my favorite ones like earlier. Picking my is, favorite children. <laughs> uh, it's it's like the Phyrexian Metamorph Revelar thing is one of my favorite things because yeah, it seems cool. so unintuitive. Actually, I think my favorite, uh, uh, I really like the zone change trigger thing that Brian brought up. Um, and I like to, I like to bring that up in the form of, of it that betrays. Uh, oh, 
is when if I attack with it, the betrays, and you sacrifice a plane, but I also control a ley line of the void. Okay, okay, hold on. So it that betrays reads, whenever an opponent sacrifices a non-token permanent, put that card onto the battlefield under your control. Yes. <laughs> I love I love this question. A ley line of the void reads, uh, if a card would be put into opponent's graveyard from anywhere, exile it instead. Okay, so they sacrifice it. Man, I know this came up when Rise was new, but I don't. So, right, so I control a ley line of the void, and uh, and I need the betrays, and I attack with it the betrays and you sacrifice the planes uh-huh uh do i get the planes i feel like you do but i couldn't possibly explain why i just feel like hearing this before but that... so uh so you think that i i do get it yeah but i but that goes against everything i think the answer should be oh <laughs> why, I, why do you I, I couldn't I can't really see why you should get the planes because uh, it's the same thing the object is sacrifices and non torment put that card on the battlefield control hmm well this well, this card how do, how do zone change triggers work well I was gonna say this isn't um this isn't a zone change trigger yes it is Ooh. yep it is a zone change trigger it is definitely a zone change trigger it triggers when it's permanent changes zones sacrifice actually has a definition which involves putting it in the graveyard okay well so which makes it a zone change trigger okay um so it's a zone change trigger uh and zone change change triggers specifically they look for the permanent or i'm sorry they look for the object in the zone that it went to after leaving the battlefield yep so that means that even though it didn't go to the graveyard it went to the exile zone instead you will get to keep the permanent now here's there's a part two and part three of this question if you bear with me for a moment <laughs> i'll bear and part, so part two is uh what happens if in response to it the betrays trigger I cast Pull from Eternity targeting my planes. Okay, so that puts it into your graveyard. Right, but there's a ley line in the void. Oh! Ooh, 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 ooh. An opponent's graveyard from anywhere. Oh, yeah. I know, I well, know. Me, 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 me. I, Brian, go for it. Oh, oh, it's I the void. I feel like you ma- might know the answer to this one. I, I know this vo- one. It's the void maw rule. <laughs> if you exile something that's exiled, it stays exiled, but it's considered a new object. Yep. Oh, man. <laughs> because if you have a void maw and a ley line of the void, if you didn't have that rule, you could infinitely pump your void maw. Um, and then part three is <laughs> is if I just attack with uh, an Ibith Trace and I do not control a ley line of the void and you sacrifice an Apocrisite, what happens? Oh, I'm going to have to read Apocrisite. Yeah, hold on. I'll read Apocrisite. Apocrys. Nope. All right. You're going to tell me how to spell Apocrisite. E-P-O-C-H-A. E-P-O? Yeah. There we go. Apocrisite. Engines a battlefield with three plus one plus one counters on it if you didn't cast from your hand. That's probably not the relevant part. When Apocrisite dies, exile it with three time counters on it and it gains suspend. Okay. Well, I got to remember. There's something subtle about this. I'm saying you don't get it this time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is what I said the first time, but I'm saying you don't get it this time because so you- the zone change here is not being replaced. So it's going to the graveyard. Therefore, it that betrays is going to look for it in the graveyard. Is that right? What do you think, Brian? Hold on, let me get the text up on it that betrays. All right, whenever an opponent sacrifices a non-token permanent. So the triggers, uh, it gets sacrificed. Um, you are attacking with it that betrays, or so you are the active player. So the non-active player's trigger is going to... The active player trigger is put on the stack, which is it that betrays. Apocrisite is put on the tr- stack next. 
uh, a Pakrasite is going to resolve. It is going to be exiled with three counters on it. Uh, it the betrays is not going to be able to find it in the zone that it's looking for, and a Pakrasite is safe in in exile. Yep. Okay. Which, which seems a little bit weird since we just explained how exile is safe, and, and the reason that this works is that. Uh, with zone change triggers, if you remember when I explained it, it says it looks for it in the zone that it went to when it left the battlefield. Right, exactly. And in the case of, of the Leyline of the Void, it didn't go to the graveyard. It went directly to the exile zone without passing go or collecting $200. Because that's a replacement and effect. Because it's a replacement effect. And in this case, we have a triggered ability that took it from the graveyard and put it in the exile zone. Okay. Uh, so that's, I have a that's probably question. my favorite series question. So forgive my, my lack of brevity there. Well, hold on. I got a, I got a question about Apocrysite. <laughs> Okay. okay. Last question. Then we got last question. Last question. Then we're going to get back. Then we're going to get back. I can. It's my apocrysite. Okay. You gain control of it somehow. You know. Let's say you zealous conscripted or something like that, and then you sacrifice it to your uh, viscera seer. Since we were talking about viscera seer so much, describe oh, one. Jeez. I see where you're going already. <laughs> what happens to the apocrysite? Okay. So I control the trigger. You, the opponent, controls the trigger. Yeah, the, the, the opponent controls the trigger. I don't see any reason why he can't exile it and put the time counts on it. And he, he, it'll be as if he suspended it. I, I don't see any reason why not. I mean, make it true, but... Jess? So you're taking control of my apocrysite and sacrificing it through some nefarious... Viscera Seer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so you're Viscera Seeing my apocrysite. Let me read apocrysite real quick. Hold on. Just to be sure I'm getting this right. Because um, the first thing I did was look up the rules on suspend. <laughs> um, so, Apocrysite. When Apocrysite enters the battlefield, blah, blah, blah. When it dies, exile it. Two times you get suspended behavior. I'm going to go with you have a suspended Apocrysite. Uh, However, um, I since you don't... So the source, the controller of the triggered abilities will be, because it's not a, a permanent on the battlefield, will be the owner of the card for suspense. So, uh, so I'm yeah. going to go with, with it's suspended, but the owner will get to cast it when the suspend is up. Yep. Isn't that fun? Oh, no, that is fun. I don't... I, yeah. <laughs> I had to look up suspend real quick to make sure there wasn't kind of some kind of like exception to that for suspend. I didn't think there would be, but you never know with these things. Like Fight, for example, which has an exception for last known information for some odd reason. Yeah. Well, okay. It, yeah. So <laughs> our next email, we may have already... We definitely talked about something similar. Uh, In this is, episode. is from think, Jeff. Right? Yep. And he's asking about uh, how Falcon Wrath Aristocat and interacts with Turn and Burn. Turn and Turn being a card that removes all abilities. So Falcon Wrath Aristocat, you can sacrifice a creature and it it uh, becomes indestructible until end of turn. So as of as of right now, which is <laughs> prior to M14's release for people who are listening from the future, um, it, it is if you if you turn and burn a Falcon Wrath Aristocrat that has been made indestructible, turn and burn does not remove the indestructibility of Falcon Wrath Aristocrat. This is because being indestructible is is different than other uh, uh, abilities. Like it doesn't gain indestructibility; it just is indestructible. Okay. Spoilers. Rumor is it that that will be changing with M14. Is it? Rumor is 
the rumor. It's the rumor. If it was confirmed, that can't be, he's is saying, it? rumor's more of a Demir thing, really, than it is a thing. Jeez. <laughs> All right. Next email comes from Will. He says, hey, Judge Cast, it's Will. And he just Hi, saw, Will. He just saw a webcomic the other day. Uh, the gist of this webcomic, because Will's about to ask if this is outside information, is uh, a guy's got a tattoo on his wrist that says, don't forget upkeep costs before draw step. Is that outside assistance? No. Yeah, I guess not. Whatever. I don't know. I mean, by the letter of the law, yes. Yes, it is. Are you going to find a judge that will enforce that? Probably not. Yeah. I'm yeah. Uh, he also asks, um, does Goblin Test Pilot choose targets on activation or resolution? Goblin Test Pilot chooses targets at random at the time that you put it on the stack. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he wanted to do Worldfire, which like excels everything and makes uh, everyone have one life, but it's not going to work. Uh, he also wanted to help uh, thank us for helping him pass his level one test. He says the only, well, he got a question wrong. I guess I shouldn't say. Well, it was about two-headed giant. He missed a question on two-headed giant. We should have a two-headed giant episode one day. Uh, I haven't. I'm, been s- I'm sick that episode. <laughs> it's not. So I, I already, I already like. I'm writing the email explaining why I can't be on that one now. Uh, <laughs> it's not so bad. Uh, I've run a bunch of two-headed giant events. Well, no. See, you and Brian can do it because then it'll be two of you for uh, two-headed giant. It's uh, the math. We'll just get you a partner, Jess. Uh. I'm good. <laughs> you have Rob Castle on since when he plays two-headed giant, he grows another head. Yeah. Yes. He does not need a partner. But yeah. He's just saying he, he wrote a lot to say. Thank you. So you're welcome. Awesome. Well, you're thank welcome. you for listening and you are welcome. I like, I like hearing the, we helped you pass, you know, level one, level two tests that, that, that is one of the reasons why we do this is to help people. Um, CJ uh, just likes to hear the sound of his own voice, but Jess and I actually like to help people. That's true. I also like to hear the sound of my own voice, and I like to help people. You're just getting everything out of this. Yeah, which one do you like more? Which one do I like more? I mean, this is great because I get to help people while hearing the sound of my own voice. Oh, it's a twofer. Yes, it is. All right, our next email comes from John, and it's a a silly EDH question. He wants to cast Wild Ricochet, which reads, you may choose new targets for target insert sorcery spell, then copy that spell, you may choose new targets for the copy targeting alliance of arms alliance of arms has joined forces starting with you each player may put any amount of mana or pay any amount of mana each player puts x 11 white soldier creature tokens onto the battlefield where x is the total amount of mana paid this way i already see the issue here uh he wants in the end to end up with all the soldier tokens unfortunately his play group was like no you don't get all the soldier tokens what card is this alliance of arms in the commander product yeah oh it's, that's why i've never heard yeah of this card. it's a okay. joint it's it's a joint forces spell uh which is kind of one of those one of those cards that it's like on resolution i think i think it's generally on on resolution players get to y'all get to pool your resources and pay uh-huh. for some x spell and you all get something based on what everybody else uh what everybody chips in yeah so if we three are playing right now and i paid one jess paid two and brian paid three we're all gonna nope. get six soldier tokens i pay zero all the time yeah me too on those you screw you <laughs> i mean like this this mechanic feels like tipping the waitress like what's going on here don't don't worry about any of that the point is wild ricochet <laughs> tipping the waitress no think about it. like I can, I can see this oh we're done eating now everybody has to chip in for the check i'm gonna play this joint forces card that says everybody puts x into the tip well see you can't say that because when i tip the waitress i actually tip her well but when you cast a joint forces spell i ain't paying for that you can pay for 
for it. And I'll just well, no, it feels it. like that because like so even if you tip well, there's always that jackass, excuse my language, that doesn't tip anything and makes the whole group look bad. Yeah. Um, at, I think it was GP Atlanta, like two years ago, we ended up with a $260 bill because... Did judges, you game for it? Well, no, no, because judges left because they told us they told us initially that they couldn't accept credit cards so judges were just throwing down cash for what they thought was appropriate and then they got they were able to to get everything set up on the credit card they brought it out there and out of the people that just left cash we were $260 shy out of left cash wow and and really we were only talking about 15 people yeah people never account for like tax tax hey let's talk about wild ricochet and alliance more all right i'll talk about it so first off he he had a question because he felt like maybe wild ricochet cannot target alliance of arms because alliance of arms does not target and wild ricochet says you may choose new targets for target insert sorcery spell that is not correct the target the um targeting restrictions for wild ricochet is instant or sorcery spell that's it it doesn't have to have targets but that being said don't get false hope yes that being said it says then copy that spell or ability you may choose new targets for the copy so the way this works is someone casts alliance of arms you cast wild ricochet targeting alliance of arms and then a copy of alliance of arms is made on on the top of the stack so when we resolve that top alliance of arms we do the whole join forces thing as it resolves everyone can pay mana we'll all get x11 soldier tokens blah 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 then the originally cast Alliance of Arms will also resolve and everybody will have another opportunity to join forces. Although I don't know why you held on to your mana for the second opportunity to join forces, but maybe you had a reason. You wanted to see what everyone paid on the first one. Yeah, but you're all getting the same amount of soldiers. So yeah, yeah casting Wild Ricochet on Alliance of Arms is not going to let you get all the dudes, unfortunately, because it doesn't target. Oh, he also asked how that interacts with Overload, which is basically the same result if... Um, if ooh, that's kind of interesting actually so say they are doing um museum orders with not overloaded so it says you know deals four damage to target creature you don't control you can copy and change the target when you're changing the target though you're changing the target of the spell they cast so you're going to be changing the target uh, you still have to change it to target one of your own creatures because it's target opponent or target creature you don't control of their spell so yeah am i making sense am i talking crazy here yeah except that if they overloaded it there's no target right right i'm saying right. i'm starting from the not overloaded case yeah i think i think it was probably just a little more uh, how would wild ricochet interact with the with the overloaded Ability. Okay. Yeah, I'll so, get there. Okay. I was going to say then also your copy will have to target one of your opponent's creatures because you're getting a copy off the wild ricochet as well. Okay. So and that's non-overloaded. That's non-overloaded. Yes. Overloaded is a lot more simple. There's no targets to change. So all your dudes are going to get museum mortared. All their dudes are going to get museum mortared. And if this is a multiplayer game, then some people's dudes are getting museum mortared twice. I want to I want to read this next guy's email because this this guy's email made me laugh. Okay, and we'll make this one our last one too. Okay, so this is uh, and we'll pick up for the rest, but this is from Andre Desjardins. I'm gonna read this. It says, "Good day." Read it. Read his nickname too. Uh, at the bottom. Eggy Dez. Ah, good old Eggy Dez. Yeah, good old Eggy Dez. <laughs> All right. So it says, "Good day, Judge Cast. Long time emailer, first time listener. So already, I've had to stop and reread this guy's <laughs> email. It's like, wait. He goes, first, I'd like to say that listening to this cast has cemented the fact that I never want to become a judge. It's like, all right, go on. <laughs> I'm expecting something horrible. Yeah. I know you get emails all the time that preach they want to become 
become judge, uh, become a judge because of you, but I am not one. All right. Your cast has given me a great appreciation for judges and what you do. I did appreciate it before, but just the scope of things you do really makes me appreciate the judge community. Okay. So this is, this was great. This, this, this made me laugh. You know, it was just like, wow, that's not for me. <laughs> I like listening to y'all's idiocy, but whoa okay so this guy he's like secondly i'd like to know if the following could create the 12th gate now if you'll remember uh when we were we were talking about maze's end we, we were saying that this card was was bad apparently it did stuff at the pro, pro tour. tour yeah i was like yeah what? but it was block constructed block constructed doesn't count for anything still <laughs> you know that it did stuff so anyway so the question was the, the actual maze's end card it says if you have 10 or more gates with different names you win the game and our question and we were like well we can figure out how to get an 11th gate but how can you get a tw- it, can you get a 12th gate and so what he asked was um, uh, it involves Lazab Demir mastermind copying an opponent's unstable shapeshifter uh, where there is a living plane or nature's revolt on the field living plane makes all your lands into dudes uh, basically, he's asking if, uh, I'm sure I don't have to review Lazav, but does Unstable Shapeshifter, yeah, ba- basically he's asking if he can make Lazav into a land, uh, that still has, uh, a, a gate, basically, that still has, uh, the Lazav name through the Unstable Shapeshifter, okay? Um, so, basically, so Lazav has copied an Unstable Shapeshifter, uh, Except that it's it's got its name and is hex and has hex and has its copy ability. Uh, but now he also has the unstable shapeshifter's ability because the, when the unstable shapeshifter died, that's what Lazav chose to copy. And unstable shapeshifter says whenever a creature enters the battlefield, you can basically become a copy of it. Right. Um, so when you play a land, uh, I, a gate or whatever, because you have uh, nature's revolt or living plane in play that makes these creatures, it is entering the battlefield. Uh, as a creature. Um, so when this land creature enters the battlefield, uh, the unstable, and I'm using finger quotes, the copied unstable shapeshifters copy ability uh, fires. And that copy ability doesn't really care about keeping name or hexproof or anything like that. So it just trounces all over the uh, the, the Lazav, hey, I've got hexproof. Hey, I keep keep my name. It does this because of you know copy layer and timestamp. So you have copy effects, you apply them through in timestamp order. Uh, so Lazav stops being Lazav and starts being Demir Guildgate uh, with the ability to, to become something else when another creature enters the battlefield, which is the uh, uh, the unstable shapeshifter's ability. So it, it uh, does not keep its name. So sorry. Sorry. All right. So the summary here is I don't think it's possible to make that 12th gate. I know for sure Lazav can't do it no matter what we try to do. But I think people should stop trying. <laughs> no. I know we asked for it, but at this point, I think it's impossible. To make Keep it up. Gate. Keep it up. Keep doing it. 12th gate. 12th gate. 12th gate. 12th gate. Just come back to Agus. us in M14. Maybe something there can do it. Agus of the Moon, Dryad Arbor, Lazav, go. Hey, so if you want to email us, you can email us at judgecast at gmail.com. I almost gave out my email address, and I was like, no, that's that's not right. Roy Schrader. CJ at- Schrader at gmail.com. <laughs> You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash judgecast and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash judgecast. Also, we have our website, judgecast.com, where you can see our latest episodes. You can listen to them. You know, that's about it. That's about everything you can do there. You can read about us, I guess. 
But anyway, you should check out our website. You guys have anything else? Anything else to wrap up this modern episode? Nope. I got nothing. <laughs> All right. I'd like to thank everybody for listening yet again. My name is CJ Trader. I keep it fair. I'm Jess Dunks. I keep it fun. I'm Brian Perlman. I keep it zone change triggerlicious. So anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, I was distracted. So what were we talking about? Reviar. Revelar. Revelar. Revviar. Reviar? I'm just going to keep pronouncing Revelar until you uh, say what the Oracle text is. Revabark? You guys still there?